Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Each episode, I sit down with an inspiring person from the magic community. We hang out on their kitchen table to talk about Magic the Gathering as they share stories from the journey of their lives. This is episode 15. I'm talking with Brian Brown Dewan, the winner of the 2016 Magic World Championships. Brian shares about his humble beginnings, how he started crashing on the couch at his friend's place, how he went from broke to grinding tournaments, writing for SCG, playing in his first tournaments, joining teams, leaving teams, getting fired, and getting rehired, all the way to locking up Grand Prix Master to earn his fabled World Championship invite. Brian is no stranger to hard work, and he credits the people around him in Roanoke, Virginia that really influenced his success. I hope you enjoy this one-of-a-kind interview with Brian Brown Dewan. Hi everyone, I'm your host, Sam Tang, and here today on Kitchen Table Magic, I have a very special guest, recently crowned Magic 2016 world champion, Brian Brown Dewan. Brian, how are you? Pretty great, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> what a whirlwind of a week that you are having. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. I mean, it's it's not something that I really thought uh, I would be going through at any point in my life. So it's pretty uh, exciting to me that I get to experience this. And honestly, I'm not sure exactly how I feel about everything yet, but uh, I'm sure that it will all kind of filter in over time. It's amazing, Brian, because I had been following you from maybe perhaps the beginning of your professional career when you were doing Versus series videos with Chris Van Meter. And I was, I can't remember exactly what deck it was, but I was just saying to myself, I really need some help. And someone said to me, you better check out these Versus series. They're doing the decks and the matchups is exactly what you're trying to work on, Sam. And so I, I went online and I watched these videos and I was like, this is amazing. I don't know who these guys are, but they're amazing. And ever since, ever since that first video, I was just a fan of you, Brian. And then kind of fast forward a little bit into the future, Grand Prix Portland, I ran into you. And I was like, Brian, <laughs> how's it going? I want to interview you. And you were like, yeah, sure, let's do it. And I was like, sweet. So we were kind of finding um, a time. And then I was just like, how about After Worlds? And kind of in the back of my mind, you know, you were like my horse in the race. I was like, BBD, BBD. I was like <laughs> chanting your name in my head. Yeah, I guess it makes for a compelling storyline if I end up winning it, you know. <laughs> I totally lucked out. I'm going to be... Uh, um, I don't know who's more happy that you won, you or me, that I get to interview you. Now. But I, I'm just so... I'm, I told you then, and I say it again right now on air, um, I am so happy for you, and I am so proud of all of your accomplishments. Um it's just, it's just an honor. It's just a real treat to be able to watch you grow and progress and play the game. It's been, yeah, it's been pretty uh, interesting ride uh, from where I started to where I am now. And uh, I mean, I still have a, a lot of ways to go. I, I, did, I did just win like the world championship, but, uh, you know, there's still a lot of magic left to be played in my uh, career, if you can call it that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Brian, I want to start at the beginning. Could you tell us kind of where you grew up and how you got started playing magic? Yeah, so I've uh, lived in Virginia basically my entire life, and I guess the first real interaction I had with Magic was actually kind of a negative one in a way. Uh, when I was in high school, I was uh, really into chess. I was like the captain of our chess team, um, took it medium seriously. Uh, you know, I'd read strategy books and things like that, 
And uh, a lot of the players that were, you know, on the chess team would sometimes like during our chess club meetings or whatever, just kind of like go off to the side and play magic against each other. And I was just like, man, that game is like so annoying. Like, like <laughs> I wish they would just play chess or whatever. And, uh, you know, fast forward like five years and like I was just in a room playing magic with some of those same guys. And it was kind of like, uh, you know, a complete reversal of where it was. Um, and I didn't even learn to play magic with those guys either. Uh, I learned how to play in college, actually. Uh, a friend of mine, freshman year, had some cards, and he was like, uh, we were all uh, the people who lived in the same uh, dorm as me, and uh, we were all like super into gaming, and we played a lot of like Halo and card games and things like that. And uh, one day he was just like, hey, I have these magic cards, we should play magic. And he taught us how to play, and uh, I immediately got hooked and basically haven't really stopped playing since. <laughs> that was about 10 years ago. Wow, 10 years ago. And Brian, when did you start playing competitive magic? Uh, so I guess it kind of depends on what you consider to be competitive magic. Um, I started like doing PTQs and stuff probably around 2008, 2009. Uh, tra- traveled around a little bit, you know, nothing too far, like maybe two hours or whatever. Um, playing in like the, the Virginia, Maryland area PTQs, um, maybe sometimes North Carolina. And... Um, didn't really start taking it super seriously until 2012. That's when uh, Todd Anderson and Brad Nelson, Jerry Thompson, a lot of people moved into the Roanoke area. Uh, Star City Games was starting to try to kind of expand their their holds a little bit and kind of take on a lot of like pro level Magic players, uh, start to produce better content, and just kind of get them in the Roanoke area to to do those things. And I kind of just latched myself into that group. Uh, I didn't really ask; I just kind of pushed myself in because. Uh, I wanted to just jump in with players that were better than me, and uh, that's kind of when I started going, be- becoming more serious, traveling around Todd Anderson mostly at first uh, to tournaments, like we were going to a lot of the SCG Opens or Grand Prix or things like that, uh, and then I just started uh, really amping up my participation level in, in Magic tournaments and really just trying to take Magic seriously. There was an interview with you earlier on that said that you were kind of like broke and you were just like starting fresh. Yes. Yeah. So 2012 uh, was probably the worst year of my life, uh, at least the, the start half of it. Basically, I had I qualified for a pro tour at the end of 2011 and I played in it at the very beginning of 2012. I did really poorly, uh, didn't make day two. And then I just basically was like super depressed. Um, I had dropped out of college and I didn't have a job. I didn't have really, uh, I, I just didn't see like any like kind of positive future for myself. And I knew that I, I was intelligent and then I could do something useful or whatever, but I just didn't really know uh, how to go about that. And for about like six months, I just kind of, I guess w- kind of wallowed, I guess is a word to use. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it just was, it was kind of a, a really depressing time for me. And uh, at the tail end of that period, I, I was actually, I was living in Blacksburg, Virginia at the time, which is where I went to school at Virginia Tech. Uh, at the end of that period, I moved to Roanoke, um, just kind of on a whim, basically deciding that I was just going to try to start fresh. And I um, didn't have a place to stay. And uh, thankfully, a friend of mine, Ruben Bresler, 
uh, who worked at Star City Games at the time, let me stay on his couch for a couple of months while I got my feet settled. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I ended up getting a job at Star City Games. Uh, eventually, Ollie and Trazi moved to Roanoke as well to work for Star City. He and I uh, got an apartment together, and that's kind of when I... I started to uh, like get my life back on track. I, I had, I, you know, I was completely broke, and I didn't really uh, have anything. And just working at Star City um, and so forth, or just basically kind of put my head down and and uh, and worked there, and and kind of pulled myself out of like you know both the financial hole and also like kind of the emotional hole that I was in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a lot of it was thanks to. Uh, you know, a lot of those, these Roanoke guys that, that I mentioned, um, and also just being able to, to work at Star City Games and just have a steady job that was in a field that I enjoyed, even if I was just sorting magic cards or whatever, still being able to work with magic cards around magic players was awesome. When did you first meet Brad Nelson and like Todd Anderson? Were they people that you already known or you kind of met them as you settled in? I knew both of them prior to having moved to Roanoke uh, because I would travel up to Roanoke to play Magic. Uh, even though I lived in Blacksburg, I would go to FNM at uh, Star City Games. And uh, on Wednesday nights, there was actually a group that met together to like draft Magic and play other board games uh, at, at, a, at a guy's house. And um, I used to go to that every Wednesday. And when Todd Anderson first moved to town, uh, Todd and Callie Anderson were the first... Uh, people to kind of move to Roanoke um, with like Star City's new wave of bringing in Magic players, and uh, I basically met Todd on, at those Wednesday nights because he had started going there as well, and uh, we we kind of became friends and, and started going to tournaments together. So by the time I moved to Roanoke, I I already knew Todd and Brad, uh, although I didn't know Brad particularly well, but I I did know both of them already. They were pretty important early influences on your Magic career. Yes, very much so. Uh, I was, I don't know, kind of like a local pro in a way, you could say. Like, I, I was I was good in terms of, uh, you know, a lot of the local players. I usually did really well in local events, things like that. Uh, but in terms of being like a competitive Magic player on a, on a grander scale, I had a lot to learn. And being with them really, like, helped me learn a lot because I was able to be with two, like, players who were better than me. And um, whenever I'm doing something that I care about, I want to be the best that I can at it. And Magic was something that I really cared about. And for me, the best way to become the best at Magic was to just learn from players who were better than me. So having having Todd and Brad around, um, and, and Jerry too, Jerry Thompson, uh, and a number of other players, uh, just gave me an opportunity to basically see players who were better than me and learn from them. And while I can't really like, pinpoint any specific thing i learned in those first few years with them i was just doing a lot better in tournaments so somehow i was i was learning from them and i was improving and i i don't know what exactly that it was i just know that it was happening and there was also a time in your life when you would travel five hours to a ptq five hours to another ptq and then just kind of put up kind of ho-hum results but you know, Brad Nelson was quoted saying that you have such a strong work ethic that you kept at it and you would qualify kind of through that means. I have like a very uh, strong drive to succeed in magic. 
and um, I'm willing to put in like almost whatever it takes to do that. And uh, that that has ha- certainly contributed a lot to my success. Uh, I think that the 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 time that Brad is talking about is, uh, I guess, a time in uh, early I think 2015 mm-hmm. uh, when I had found myself without a qualification to the next pro tour, and I basically did. Um, I, I, I actually created a schedule for like a three month period and every single possible qualification means that I could have, I played in. So every weekend was like Saturday PTQ somewhere, Sunday PTQ somewhere else. Uh, if there wasn't a PTQ I could go to, it was a Magic Online PTQ or something like that. And it was just every single day of every weekend I had this schedule planned out of how I was going to try to qualify for the Pro Tour. And uh, kind of a, almost like a fiction story, I failed every time until the very, very last PTQ, uh, which I ended up winning. So that was kind of a cool story where uh, I drove, like I guess the week prior to winning, I drove to Delaware, got second place in the PTQ, drove six hours back to Roanoke, um, actually had, <laughs> that was a, a kind of a crazy story where I had like, uh, you know, I got pulled over for something and had like a suspended driver's license and oh, no. that I didn't know about and all kinds of crazy things happened on that trip but ended up getting second in the pro tour or second in the PTQ and then the next weekend I drove to Virginia Beach which is despite being in Virginia surprisingly a five-hour drive <laughs> um, got ninth on tiebreakers in that PTQ I was the the only x1 in the last round that couldn't draw into top eight and then I got ninth and then I drove the five, five hours back from that PTQ, got up early the next morning, played another PTQ, and ended up winning that one. Incredible. So it was kind of a, I don't know, it was kind of an awesome story of like just perseverance and like actually succeeding in the end. Uh, there's a lot of stories too of me trying to do that and failing, but that was a cool, cool situation where it actually worked out. And also sometime mixed in there, there was a time when you carried your stuff around in a plastic bag and the plastic bag got stolen. <laughs> Yeah, that was during the period of 2012 where I was like broke. I basically had nothing, and uh, I just didn't have a suitcase uh, or just like a bag to carry my uh, my like stuff around in. I just didn't own one, and I just didn't want to spend the thirty or forty dollars that it cost to buy one. Uh, so I just carried my stuff around in like garbage bags when we'd go to tournaments. And uh, one event in Baltimore, we were parked in a parking garage. And uh, the door was locked to Todd's car, so I had to just, um, I decided to just put the bag underneath his car, and I put it, like, basically in the position that I felt was least likely for somebody to see it. Uh-huh. And uh, we came back, like, two hours later, and it was gone. So oh, no. Lost, lost all my clothes or whatever. Wasn't too much money worth of clothing, but uh, it was kind of uh, my, I guess my favorite shirt at the time that... Uh, I was, uh, in a way, kind of like known by because I would wear it all the time, but <laughs> ended oh up losing God. that one. And uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of, uh, that was the first, actually the first time I'd ever met Brad Nelson. So that's oh. his first his first experience with me is uh, me carrying stuff around in a plastic bag and losing <laughs> my stuff. <laughs> oh, no. So the first time you met Brad Nelson, he was like, who is this kid with the trash bags? Yeah, he, he probably didn't have the highest opinion of me at that point in time. Oh my gosh, that's too ridiculous. Brian, you were grinding out PTQs online, offline, driving around the East Coast, getting your driver's license suspended, and you would qualify 
and you would get there. What was the first Pro Tour that you played in? Uh, so the first one I played in was Pro Tour Dark Ascension, mm-hmm. uh, the beginning of tw- 2012 in Hawaii. Ah. And uh, I was I was a complete noob to the whole Pro Tour thing, and I ended up going four and four. Uh, which at the time was not good enough for day two. They changed the rules afterwards to where four and four does make day two. I went two and three in standard and two and one in in my draft. At the time that I was in that pro tour, I actually, um, oddly, like most people think of me as a constructed player, but at that point in time, I was very much a limited player and I didn't play that much constructed and I drafted all the time. So going into my last draft, I had to 3-0 to make day two and I, I thought that I was going to do it and I ended up losing a super close match in the last round and was was very, very disappointed with the 2-1. Uh, now, if you asked me today, I'd usually be pretty happy with a 2-1 in, in limited, but um, <laughs> at the time I was I was, I was was pretty, uh, pretty sad by that. Felt like I was capable of better than that. But yeah, that pro tour, I basically... Kind of was a one-off for me, where I played that Pro Tour, uh, and then I didn't play another one for a year and a half, and then I've played every Pro Tour since the second one. What was your thought process, Brian, that you had worked so hard to grind out these events, and then you finally get to the Pro Tour? You know, someone standing in my shoes would say that, from my perspective, I would be very happy with that kind of performance, but it seemed like you were like, man, I really needed to do better, and you were kind of unhappy with yourself that you didn't do as well. Yeah, uh, I mean, I didn't expect to do particularly well. Certainly was outclassed at the Pro Tour level, at least at that point in my my life. Uh, but being like, I didn't want to just qualify for the Pro Tour. I wanted to like be a Pro Tour player. Uh, so for me, qualifying was awesome. Um, getting to go to the Pro Tour at least once was uh, was certainly cool for me. You know, if I had quit playing Magic, I could say you know I played in the Pro Tour uh, or whatever. But um, that's not really what I wanted out of it. I wanted to be like, you know, an actual Magic Pro. So I wanted to be, get back to the Pro Tour and actually do well at it. And so Pro Tour after Pro Tour, you started to rumble with the best of the best. What are some things that you felt like you learned kind of personally through that experience? Number of things. One, being able to mentally handle it is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Being able to like basically uh play against somebody who is extremely good at magic and not get intimidated by it or not get nervous about it or not misplay because you're preoccupied with the fact that you're playing against like john finkel or whatever that's kind of a big deal at at the pro tour level like you want to be able to not have any of those distractions and i think that's something that i've really improved at recently whereas before i would i would kind of be nervous like um you know, a number of players that, like, maybe not even the players that you would think, but people like Sam Black, I'd play against Sam Black and be super nervous because I knew he was really good and things like that. That would always affect me. Like, I almost always would lose when I would play against those players. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of something that uh, was big to get over. And then the other thing, too, is just being more comfortable and also having better decks. Like, better deck selections a big deal, too. Uh, you, you can't really do well at a Pro Tour if you don't have a good deck. So, making better choices in terms of what decks I'm playing also has helped a lot with how I've done at Pro Tours. Chris Pakula said in an earlier interview on the show, when he was talking about John Finkel, that John has a philosophy and a mentality that You know, some people say that there's the right play and there's good plays and there's better plays and there's wrong plays. But quoted through John, there's only one play. 
and that's the right play. All other plays are wrong. Do you find that as you were improving and going from local pro grinder to established pro tour player and then playing with really established players that you were, you know, saying that you were getting nervous about, do you find that they always have the right play and you just have to kind of figure it out and kind of fight through that? You know, they don't actually. Uh, that's one of the awesome things about Magic and why all these players keep playing the game is even the best players don't always come up with the right play. And I'm actually of the belief that there's not always exactly one right play for any situation. And and maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, Maybe I'm just looking at it through a different lens. But uh, I think different players, I think different plays could be right for different players in the same situation. And maybe there is exactly one right play for John Finkel and one right play for me in the same board state. But that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, our right plays are exactly the same. Um, maybe that sounds weird, but I think that there's a lot, a lot of magic comes down to, you know, reading your opponent and, uh, your con- like the kind of body language tells that both players are giving off and things like that, uh, certainly are important. And sometimes you make a play that seems wrong. Um, but you just like, you just have that gut instinct read that they have a certain card and it turns out that if they have that card, you know, you're making the right play and things like that. So I think there's a, there's more to that than just uh, always making the right play. And I think that even if it was just that, all these top players are not like they don't play perfectly. They play very, very well, but they certainly make mistakes. Um, you know, even the best of the best, like last weekend at Worlds, there were a number of situations where um, playing against some of these best players in the world, like I noticed that they made a number of mistakes against me and i'm sure that they would even you know admit that they were mistakes uh and i mean i made my certainly fair share of mistakes as well um and it it just you know even even the best stumble it's it's basically impossible to play magic perfectly you mentioned earlier brian about reading body language what are some of the things that are going through your head when you size up your opponent in the middle of a match determine what line of play you should do so a lot of it's facial tics, um, how people, people a lot of times have like an immediate reaction to what they draw, if they draw a card, uh, whether they want to or not, they kind of give something away. Uh, so a lot of what I do is, uh, in fact, when I play Magic, I kind of watch my opponent almost more than the board itself, just to see what they, they're, you know, trying to see, I'm trying to see what they're thinking about, basically. And uh, a lot of it's like facial tics. And, uh, you know, the reaction they give when they draw a card. Some of it is, is also just actual body language. If they're slumping in their chair versus sitting up straight, things like that. Some of it, too, is, is there's always that little sub game of sometimes they're trying to sell you something. And you have to figure that out, too. Uh, you know, sometimes they are putting on airs that they don't have anything when they actually do. And you have to try to read through that as well. And I, I feel like I've become reasonably good at, at kind of parsing through my opponent's face, facial expressions and what they're trying to tell me with it. Uh, and in fact, the, the, the hardest people to do that for are the people who just don't give away anything. And I think that that's all, basically probably the optimal way to do it, if you can, is to just have a strong poker face. Um, a lot of people try to, like, you know, outthink their opponents by, you know, acting sad when they have a good hand or you know, acting like they trying to show off strength when they have nothing. But people are pretty good at picking up on like the underlying truth there. And a lot of times the best thing you can do is to just like 
not give them anything either way and make them just have to go off of just the cards. Who are some of the best players to look at when it comes to that kind of poker face and body language? The one that really comes to mind for me is Melissa DeTora. She just has a very like stoic face when she plays Magic, winning or losing, and it's really like impossible. I've never actually played against her. I've just watched her play like on camera before, and she just she just never gives anything away whether she's winning or losing, and it's uh, definitely very impressive. I've noticed that sometimes when I'm in like a, a pre-TQ or a, a Grand Prix trial or something like that, and I'm in a different field and people have never met me before locally, it, this doesn't really happen at like a Grand Prix or anything, but really like locally, they kind of like, I can get away the first couple of rounds because they look at me funny and they're like, I've never seen you before. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know it. And they get kind of skittish. They get kind of scared. Yeah, like there's certainly a thing where the more you play somebody, the more you know about them. Um, I was actually asked a question at Worlds. Uh, I don't remember who asked me the question of who I was most scared to play against in Worlds. And my answer was was just easily Brad Nelson. And the reason is because Brad knows me. Like he knows all, like he's played against me enough times and he knows all my little like ticks or my, you know, if I parse my lips in some way, like he understands what that means. And to me, that's like scary because you know, he know like I'm not going to be able to fool him, and I'm probably going to be give I'm probably going to be giving away information I don't want to give away to him. So yeah, there's so much value in in playing against people you know in that regard. Did you expect to face Brad? Uh, I think it was. I mean, there's 24 players and you play 14 rounds, so uh, I think mathematically it's likely you play any given player one time. Uh, in fact, I actually did play Brad in the tournament as well. So um, I think that. Uh, I guess maybe some. I guess you will play some people more than once. So maybe you're about fifty percent to play any given player one time. Who were some other players other than Brad that you were a little skittish or a little frightened to play against? I don't think anyone uh, particularly frightened me, but the, the one that comes to mind the most was actually Lucas Blohan. Yeah, he had won the recent Pro Tour, and he was a player that um, mo- most of those players are people that I know. Uh, I've played against a, a, a number of times, and while I've uh, seen Lucas at Pro Tours and uh, talked to him a few times there. Uh, He wasn't somebody that I knew particularly well, but yet I knew that he was very, very good at magic. And um, I played against him in limited, and he just smashed me. And then he was a bad matchup for me in both constructed formats. So he was somebody that I was actively hoping to not get paired against, uh, really in any format, because one, I knew he was a very, very good player, certainly one of the best in the room. And two, like... I just knew that he was a really, really bad matchup for me across the board. And from what I know of Lucas, like he doesn't really make that many mistakes. So he's going to capitalize on a good matchup if he has it. Who are some of your favorite people to play against at Worlds? Uh, So I really enjoyed playing against people who were more laid back. There were a number of people who I played where our match was like super friendly and, and, and laid back. Uh, comes to mind was like actually my very first match of the tournament against Andre Strosky who is uh, a player on my Pro Tour team. And uh, I'm a, I, I like Strosky a lot. He's a super, super fun player. And uh, getting paired against him in the first round, we had a kind of a light match. And it was, uh, it was actually a very, very close match. But um, it, was, it was kind of a light tone in terms of how we were you know, interacting with each other. And that was just a really great start to the tournament. And then beyond that, I played JC Tao three different times. And all three of our matches were pretty upbeat in terms of 
uh, how we were interacting with each other. Very, very friendly matches, which I really enjoyed that. Like, I wanted to have a good time at Worlds and, and enjoy the experience. And so um, playing against those two helped a lot. Uh, I guess a third one would be Mike Sigurist, who is another good friend of mine. And uh, when we played against each other, our match was pretty lighthearted as well. You talked a little bit about teams, Brian. Are you on a team right now? You're on Team Channel Fireball? Uh, it's actually team face-to-face games. Ah, okay. uh, one of the things about Pro Tour teams that's a little confusing to players, um, and rightfully so, that aren't uh, super you know, entrenched in the whole Pro Tour thing, is that I wear a Channel Fireball shirt, and I'm represented by Channel Fireball because I, I work for them, I write for their website, and so forth. Uh, and they sponsor me for tournaments, but in terms of teams themselves, uh, teams are kind of just players who want to test together, and they're not really related to who those players work for so uh, for example i'm on team face-to-face games and uh you know face-to-face games is the company that sponsors our team um, but we all are represented by different brands uh like me and sam party and uh paulo and uh you know we're all associate affiliated with channel fireball uh, but then we also have someone like Mike Sigrist, who is affiliated with Star City Games, or like Steve Rubin, who wears the TCG player shirt, things like that. We have about maybe five or six different you know, types of shirts that we wear at events based on like who, who's actually sponsoring us individually. Um, but as a team, we are... Uh, we're, you know, we're a team more for we want to work with each other and less of like um, based on who we work for. When did you join Team Face to Face? Uh, actually, interestingly enough, I was on that team twice. So, um, I teamed up with them back in 2014. I played in, uh, two pro tours with them and I did uh, pretty bad at bo- both pro tours. And I basically, after the second time I had teamed with them, I ended up leaving the team. And my reasoning was that, uh, I wanted to test with like Brad Nelson and a bunch of the other Roanoke people that were on the pro tour. So I wanted to, you know, we wanted to kind of foster a Roanoke pro team sort of. And there were a number of people who were qualified. Uh, it was like myself, Brad, Todd has been qualified in and out of pro tours. Um, you know, Jerry Thompson, and then a couple other people like Michael Majors, Ross Merriam, uh, people who were not living in Roanoke at the time, although they do now, but were kind of affiliated with like Star City Games and the like. So uh, I, I kind of left face to face to form up with that team. And I was, I wouldn't even say, like, I kind of felt bad. I don't think I left on necessarily the best terms. Um, while I really liked all the players on the team i felt like our team was certainly lacking the face-to-face team um and i I, when i left i had a you know had a conversation with john stern who is kind of the uh he is kind of the adult of face-to-face team he's he's kind of the uh the team manager in a way and i had a conversation with him about like a lot of the things that i didn't like about face-to-face um and i wasn't trying to be mean it was just like um these were things that didn't really work out for me and uh, I ended up testing with the Roanoke people for about a year and a half, and I did not do well in any of those pro tours, and I felt like our team wasn't working out, and we ended up kind of just breaking off from each other. Um, Despite being friends, we realized that we just weren't very good teammates, um, which is a thing that can happen, and after that happened, I ended up kind of coming, crawling back to -to face-to-face, and they, they ended up accepting me back on the team, and I can tell you now that the the team is certainly uh, way better than it was the first time I was involved with them. And like basically a lot of the problems I had with it are like not really issues anymore. And 
I've been with them for the last two Pro Tours, and I've had two not amazing finishes, but certainly amongst my best finishes. So I'm pretty excited about continuing to work with them. Prior to 2016, you were writing for Star City Games. Yeah. And there was a little period of time where people noticed it kind of dropped off the radar. And then when you came back in January of 2016, you were on Channel Fireball. What happened there was uh, I had been writing for Star City Games actually since 2011. Uh, I think I wrote my first article for them at the very end of 2011. Um, And then since then, I had been writing for them. Um, I started out as a... uh, just on the select side writing like monthly articles or sometimes bi-weekly uh doing uh, i ended up starting out doing some of the versus videos originally with todd anderson eventually with chris van meter uh and then kind of worked my way up in writing with them up to the select side and then you know weekly articles things like that uh, kind of built up a fan base so by the time the end of 2015 rolled around we had yearly contracts with star city games and uh, my contract was coming to an end and they ended up deciding to not renew my contract, um, effectively like firing me in a way. Um, and the reasons for that are uh, a lot of it. Um, in fact, a good portion of it is my fault. Um, basically, I was uh, kind of struggling in a way to keep up with the pace of writing a weekly article. And uh, I was I was missing some deadlines and um, having issues in that regard. Uh, there were a couple other things they said that were like, you know, some issues with communication, uh, things like that, that they cited as a reason for not rehiring me. And uh, while that was all true, it was also something that I felt we could have worked out. Um, and it, it definitely hurt me because uh, I had put so much into Star City Games. Uh, for the for the last four years, I was basically like a walking Star City Games advertisement uh, because I, I loved SCG. Like they really, I mean, when I first started working there, I was in a really bad spot. And by the time 2015 had ended, I was in a really good spot. And, uh, you know, I, I owed a lot of that to Star City Games. So I was I was a very big fan of, of SCG and I was a big supporter. And like every time, <clears throat> every time I would go to events, I was always like, you know, saying things that were good about Star City Games, I would defend them when people would say, like, they're a horrible company and things like that. Um, And so I was definitely hurt by them just, like, kind of, you know, unceremoniously, like, kicking me out the door. Um, And it wasn't even like they called, like, they just sent me an email saying, like, you're done or whatever, and that was it. So um, I was was pretty hurt by that. uh, But I didn't want to let it, like, affect my career or anything about how I played Magic. So basically what I did was I just went out and tried to find another job immediately, got hired by Channel Fireball. Um, Really actually love Channel Fireball a lot. Really appreciate all the people that I've worked with with CFB. They've been great. And basically since then, I've just had like a very amazing year. So um, I'm pretty happy that, you know, what was a bad thing at the time ended up kind of being a net positive in the long run. Yeah, I'm very happy to hear that you did work through it throughout the entire theme of you talking about kind of your journey. Brian, you've been a very hard worker. You know, you've really put your nose to the grindstone and you've been there. You've shown up and you've put in all the hours and you've been incredibly humble and a gracious human being about it. You've you know, you've never complained about anything. You've never you know, lashed out at the community. You didn't have any 
issues or transgressions or anything like that. You've always just you've always just been a solid guy, really dedicated to the game and dedicated to competition. And so I am very happy to see that. You know, I was surprised when I saw you made the jump over, and I was like, hmm, I don't I don't know what that was there, but uh, uh, but I'm happy to see that you're thriving in a place that you're happy and that you're producing content. And yeah, that's really wonderful. It's pretty great. And like basically for me, it's hard for me to. I mean, I do complain about things. Uh, I, I think everyone does, but um, in, in, a, in a kind of a grand scale, it's, it's hard for me to really complain because, I mean, I get to, my job is writing about Magic the Gathering, so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really, I have to kind of scrape the bottom of the barrel if I want to, if I want to complain about something when I get to, I get to do what I love for a living, so, um, you know, any, any complaints kind of ring hollow in that regard. I, I'm just like really actually fortunate because you know not everyone succeeds like there's always you know there's a lot of people who work really hard and don't see success and i'm very very lucky that i'm somebody who has put in a lot of work and has seen the success of that um because that's just not true of everyone it didn't have like you know it wasn't like hard work equals success you know, there's also a bit of luck in there too. And there's a bit of opportunity and, you know, just being the right place at the right time and, you know, all kinds of different factors that go into that. And so, you know, I, have, I consider myself very fortunate that I've kind of been on the right end of a lot of those different situations. And Brian, over the years, you have invested a lot into yourself as a competitor, you know, not just in the game of magic, but also in the game of life, kind of getting yourself off the couch and earning money and working hard and surrounding yourself with people that you like and you care about and that you admire. I've always also noticed in a couple of your tweets that you talk about keto and also losing some weight. Can you share with the audience what keto is? Uh, it's it's basically a um, – it's kind of short for ketosis, which is a state that the body goes into when you um, basically don't give it uh, – so the way the body works is it eats – um, it consumes sugar, uh, which is the same as a car- as carbs, carbohydrates, uh, to give itself energy. When it doesn't have sugar to consume, uh, then it starts to eat away at your like the fat that you have stored up in your body, um, and and uses that to sustain you. Uh, the way ketosis works in the, in the keto diet is basically you don't give your body carbs, um, so then it's just forced to eat fat and um it's it's an extremely effective way to lose weight a lot of people question like you know whether it's healthy to be on the ketosis the keto diet but the thing about it is at least for me personally is that maybe it's not like the absolute most healthy that i can be in terms of what i'm eating um but it is still way healthier than what i was eating before um basically i eat almost exclusively like vegetables and meat um kind of uh, you know, like chicken and broccoli, or I, I do like sausage and peppers or things like that. Like those are some pretty common meals that I make. And, um, that's basically the, the bulk of the diet is you just, you don't give your body carbs and then it burns fat. And, uh, I started doing it. Um, actually, uh, I don't know if you remember from the story that I told before when I was, I lived briefly with Ruben Bresler and then I moved in with Ollie and Trazi. Uh, and when I had moved in with Ollie, uh, he had been losing weight using the, this low carb diet, um, and he had already lost like 40 pounds doing it. And at the time, I was probably the heaviest I've ever been. I weighed I weighed about 330 pounds when I moved in with Ollie, and um, I decided 
he he wanted to start going to the gym and i was not about that life because i <laughs> i'm just not i don't like the gym i don't enjoy it. it's not not something i i really want to do uh, but i decided one day and i i don't know what caused me to do this uh and i i can remember the i can remember the scene like perfectly i was just i had like just taken some trash out to the dumpster from our apartment and i was just standing i was like walking back to our apartment from the dumpster and it was like a cold october night and uh i just like decided like i'm just gonna do this i'm not gonna think about it because if i think about it i'm gonna talk myself out of it i'm just gonna do this and not think about it because i just i'm not happy with who i am i walked in i told ollie i was gonna do it and to not let me change my mind and uh, we ended up start. We started going to the gym. We started dieting, and over the course of the next year, I lost like 115 pounds. Wow! Um, that was also really instrumental in my improvement in magic too, because one, carbs are kind of the mind killer in in, in terms of a magic tournament. Like they make you sluggish. They kind of slow you down um, in terms of how fast you're thinking and things like that. Um, so I noticed a great, like a drastic improvement of how I was playing when I stopped eating carbs, but also I just gained a lot of personal confidence, which was really important, uh, for myself personally, but also for like how I handled myself in magic tournaments, um, and things like that. Like I, I used to put a lot of emphasis, like I wanted people to like, like me, you know, I wanted people to, um, I cared a lot, I guess, what about what other people thought of me. And while I still do care about that, I think everyone does. Um, and I think it's e- even important to care about that to, to some degree. Um, I no longer let it be like a driving force for me. And so I think that, that level of confidence um, and just being like, you know what? I don't care if people think I'm like horrible at magic because I'm making this wild play in this game. I'm just going to make the play I think is the best. And if it backfires, like so be it. And, and that kind of change in mentality really helped me succeed a lot in magic too. Where did you learn about the keto diet? Was it from Tim Ferriss? Uh, it was actually from Ollie because he was doing it. Ah. Um, so uh, I basically learned about it from Ollie. Um, and I just kind of let him take the reins in terms of how, how we were doing it. Um, and, and like he kind of taught me like, you know, what kinds of foods you can eat, what kinds of foods you can't eat, things like that. I was just thinking about Tim Ferriss, and uh, he was saying how you should try coconut oil blended in your green tea in the morning or coffee in the morning, and that kind of helps you with your cognitive abilities and staying focused and not getting as hungry and things like that. And uh, I used to have some pretty bad habits myself, like I would never eat breakfast. I was not too much of a morning person, so I'd kind of wake up and i feel sluggish, and then I'd try to have coffee or whatever, and I would never eat anything. But um, I switched to green tea, and then I switched to coconut oil, and then I would do like a teaspoon or tablespoon of like coconut oil melted into my green tea. And then it's like made me like not have these like crazy crashes and mood swings in the mornings. And then by lunchtime, I'm not like super hungry. I, I mean, I'm, I have an appetite. I'm hungry, but I'm not to the point of like um, just feeling really sluggish. And that's eased me into um, having breakfast and eating things in the morning. So now my diet has also kind of leveled out <laughs> and uh yeah, so I was, just, and then, like from a brain function perspective, that also that also works pretty well. I mean, I think you're like right on in that regard. Like, there's, I think there's so much about the human body we don't know, and I think so much about like succeeding and in, in various things involves like how you treat your body. Um, like, it's actually I think very, very extremely important. And you know, one of the things that 
so I lost all that weight. And one of the things that happened to me over the next few years, I gained a lot of it back. And that was just through uh, me traveling a lot and kind of some poor eating habits and things like that. And um, last June, I kind of made a similar decision where I was like, uh, or, or this this June, I guess I should say a couple months ago, where I was like, all right, putting my foot down, I'm done doing this. Like, I'm going to go back to like, what I was doing before trying to like, you know, lose all this weight again and, and get myself back. And since then I've been like very, um, almost like regimented in how I, I like do things like I, you know, I've been going to the gym, like basically every day. Uh, I, you know, eat at around the same times every day, go to bed around the same time every day. And like just doing all that, like it's, it's kind of, amazing to me like how much more like how how much better i feel and how much more energy i have and like how much more things i feel like i can do just based on changing those simple things we definitely want you to preserve your long-term health because we need we need you in the community (laughs) brian we need you to stick around for as long as you can doing the best i can i don't know i could i'm sure i could do better but uh this is this is where i'm at and i'm as long as i'm making progress even if it's not perfect uh, I'm happy. I'm happy with that. Uh, I don't know. I put a lot of emphasis on constantly trying to improve uh, in various areas of my life. I don't usually worry myself too much about like hitting certain goals at certain times or um, how quickly I'm progressing or you know all things like that. I basically just have like the. Uh, it's kind of almost like a, a yes or a no. Like, am I progressing? If so, good. If not, bad. Um, and that's kind of the thing. And so I, I'm, I just always want to be improving myself in some regard as much as I can. Brian, yes, you have worked on yourself a lot and thought about lots of ways to improve. I want to talk about kind of some recent events that led up to Worlds. You are the Grand Prix Master of 2015-2016. Yeah, um, that's, I don't know, it was kind of a, an extremely weird journey. Um, and very grueling, but very rewarding. Uh, and not even just because I won it. I, 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 I was happy with the whole thing, even if I didn't win. Uh, would have been a little bit disappointed I didn't win, but, um, I enjoyed the competition and the, the experience anyway. Uh, but yeah, for me, the whole Grand Prix thing was basically a year in the making. Uh, I started out top eighting a Grand Prix. I lost in the finals of Grand Prix Oklahoma City very, very early in the 2015 season, uh, 2015-2016 season. And uh, after that tournament, uh, there's a guy um, on Twitter uh, who posts a spreadsheet that has uh, er- how everyone's doing in, in the um, like player, like the various like pro points and things like that, player of the year, all, all those things. And he has the spreadsheet that he updates after every tournament. Um, and I, I looked at that spreadsheet after Grand Prix Oklahoma City. Um, I don't even know, like somebody like retweeted or something on Twitter and I saw it. And I, I just saw that I was like in second or third place for the Grand Prix player of the year race. And even though it was only like two months into the season, uh, I got the idea that if I just went to like almost every Grand Prix, I could maybe try to win it because I didn't, my idea was like, I don't know if anyone else is like thinking about this, um, this early on and maybe I can like get a leg up 
And like by the time other people like you know think, man, I'm gonna try to do this Grand Prix Master thing, like it's already too late. I'm already too far ahead. Right. So that was my game plan go- uh, at that point, and uh, I ended up staying in about second or third place almost the entire year. I actually consistently fell further and further behind despite doing pretty well. Uh, but basically, like Tomohara Saito was doing extremely well. Uh, in tournaments, and then also uh, Fabrizio and Terry was just crushing Grand Prix like week in and week out. And then uh, he ended up, um, I, I actually ended up basically giving up on the race. Um, I, I had fallen back to like fourth or fifth place, uh, and I had basically given up on it because it seemed like an insurmountable lead. What ended up happening was Fabrizio got banned around in may for uh like cheating yeah and that ended up like kind of opening up the 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 grand prix race again like all of a sudden it was actually a a race because he he was ahead by so much nobody could really catch him uh but now suddenly i was in third place behind uh or i was in like fourth place i think behind um saito and reed duke and somebody else i think it might have been seth manfield at the time because he had that crazy end of year tear um but yeah, I so saw I was in like fourth place or something and thought like, but I was only behind by like four, three or four points at that point instead of like the 12 or whatever that Fabrizio had on me. Uh, so then I decided that I was going to try to get there and play all the, the Grand Prix the rest of the year. And I just like did extremely well in every single Grand Prix I played from that point on. Uh, and I just, I, it was catching up one point at a time. Like every Grand Prix, I'd be like a little bit closer, a little bit closer, a little bit closer. And uh, interestingly enough, I never had the lead in the Grand Prix Player of the Year race until the very last Grand Prix. There was the first Grand Prix the entire year that I was actually in the lead going into it. Um, And I ended up maintaining that lead and and winning the race. So kind of a cool story where I just was always in second or third place the entire year, but always just close enough to be within striking distance. And then at the very, very end, I kind of like got a second win and just squeaked my way into first. Squeaking your way into first, did you did you lead by one point, two points? Going into the last Grand Prix, I was ahead by exactly one point. My goodness! And uh, so, actually, it was the last Grand Prix itself was kind of a very intense experience as well. Where I went in and I was ahead by one point on uh, Saito, and I was ahead by five points on both Seth Manfield and Reed Duke. And uh, Saito had a pretty bad tournament, and he kind of dropped out early. Um, after the like second round of day two, I was already locked for beating Saito, uh, where the, no matter if I lost the rest of my rounds and he won the rest of his, I, I was still going to be the Grand Prix master. So that was that was great. But then there was this other story where Seth was like 10-0 and or 11-0 and or whatever. And if he got exactly first place in the tournament, he would tie me. And if he tied me, he had the tiebreaker. Oh my and goodness. And he would win the Grand Prix Master. So I was in this, this situation where I had, you know, I had I had been competing against Saito the last like three or four Grand Prix because we were the two in the lead. And now all of a sudden there's this chance that like Seth can overtake me. And uh, he ended up making it into the top eight, making it past the first round of top eight. And then he ended up losing in the semifinals, like barely securing it for me. So the entire the entire thing was, was super close, despite uh, the person that I thought I was going to have to fight the hardest, uh, like Saito. I ended up winning that uh, that aspect of the race like pretty early. But then there was this, this other storyline of like Seth, you know, spiking this tournament and like crushing my dreams. So... Wow, that's an incredible story. And so so you find out that you win the Grand Prix Master title. 
what goes through your head at that point? Just kind of like relief and also exuberance. Like uh, I was a little bit, you know, there was so much intensity surrounding whether Seth would win. So when he lost in the semifinals, there was so much relief. Like, all right, I actually did it. I actually won this Grand Prix uh, race or whatever. And then there was also just, you know, kind of excitement and celebration. And I'm like, wow, I'm actually going to play in the world championship. Like I thought I would never play in that tournament. Um, so there was, there was that kind of excitement. Like, you know, I get to play in this tournament that I've always wanted to play in. That's like the super, super elite tournament. And I'm like, kind of like the non elite player that got to, got to go along for the ride. But it was, it was exciting to be able to have that opportunity. What did you do to prepare for worlds? Once I had qualified for worlds, I knew that I was not going to basically take it lightly. Um, I mean, I, I knew I I wasn't going to take it. I wasn't going to take how I did in worlds too hardly either like either way like um i was just gonna play and what i wouldn't care too much if i did really badly but at the same time like i'm gonna go to this tournament and give myself the best chance to win so uh and there's a you know there's a lot on the line like um for for a magic player you don't make that much money so first place of seventy thousand dollars is you know it's pretty sizable amount for for a magic player um and things like that so there, there was a lot on the line and I knew that I wanted to give myself the best chance. So I ended up teaming up with Brad Nelson. Uh, we had talked about how we, if we qualified for Worlds, we wanted to team together. And we both did. And then uh, Brad had qualified for Worlds largely in part to the influence of his teammates from Team Eureka, the team that he had, he had joined um, after we had that uh, Roanoke team split off at the end of last year. And uh, those the, basically being on Team Eureka for Brad had... Um, helped him immensely in limited and he had like top eight at the pro tour right after and and so forth and they basically were able to help elevate his game to the point where he reached world so he felt that he was locked into testing with his two teammates Yoel Larson and Martin Miller uh, who had both qualified as well so uh, it was just it was the four of us and it was a little bit weird for me in that I was not testing with my face-to-face teammates, but there were too many of us to test together in one group anyway. So we um, we all knew that we were going to have to be splitting off anyway. And so we tested for about a week and a half straight. Like we got back from the Pro Tour and then Brad and I went to the SCG Invitational. And then we flew straight from that Invitational to Seattle and tested for just a straight week and a half along with uh, Yoel and Martin for Worlds. And I have to imagine that we put in probably more than anyone else did in terms of testing um, because we started really early and we worked basically all day every day from that point on so there was a, there was a lot of testing involved and it was actually really really good testing too uh, I had never tested with either of the the European guys uh, Yoel and Martin and they were both really great so um, I was I was pretty pleased with the whole experience like I didn't know what to expect going in with them. Um, but everyone got along like really well. There were there was very little like infighting, which we're all like reasonable people. You know, if you in, or if you're in the same room with somebody for twelve hours a day, a week and a half straight, like there's bound to be you know frustrations and things. Um, and we kind of we kind of avoided any of that. We had good solid testing, and um, yeah, that's basically the dream when, as far as testing is concerned. What is your process that goes into testing? It depends on the event. But for Worlds, there were three different formats, and Brad is really good at coming up with plans 
So Brad was kind of our uh, our master engineer in terms of how we were going to test. He had the, basically the plan of at, – well, at first, Martin, Martin joined us later. So at first, there were just three of us. And Brad's plan was that we would have two people playing a const- in constructed while the third person drafted. Because there's three different formats, draft, standard, and modern. We needed to kind of be able to test all three of them, and that was a really efficient way to do that. We tried to do that a bunch at first. In terms of testing, we put a lot of emphasis on standard because it was also the format of the top four. And it's just really like much harder to test modern than standard anyway because there's so many different decks and people could come up with come to the tournament with like anything. Whereas in standard, we were pretty sure that it was, you know, it was going to be like Bant Company decks and like Emrakul decks. And basically, it was just 13 Bant Company decks and 11 Emrakul decks at the tournament. So mm-hmm. basically, pretty uh, right on the money there. So we dedicated most of it to limited and standard, or at least that was our attempted goal. We just tried to narrow down on decks and like eliminate ideas and things like that. And we pretty quickly ended up on Bant Humans for standard because it just seemed like the best deck. And settling early on Bant Humans really gave us some free leeway to test a lot more modern. And modern was kind of a wild process where a lot of us just like were on and off decks and Brad kind of spiraled. Uh, about like what his deck choice was going to be, where he was just like on one deck, then the next, then the next, then the next, and just like spiraling until he hit rock bottom, and then he ended up just playing Jund. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he did really well with it, so it worked out. But yeah, Modern was kind of a, a crazy thing, and I was actually very stressed about Modern because the two Europeans wanted to play Living End, but I wasn't sold on the deck, and they were trying to convince us to play it, and I eventually just broke down and played the deck that I knew the best, which was Ban Eldrazi, and uh, it really worked out well, so I'm pretty happy that I stuck with my guns in that regard. Ban Eldrazi is really good in modern, and obviously Ban Humans is really good in standard, so you kind of just rode the Ban wave right through <laughs> Worlds. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you just bant people and they can't do anything about it. So <laughs> that, that was my plan is to just uh, Yavamaya coast some people out of the tournament. <laughs> That's too funny. You just bant people out. <laughs> yeah, and uh, my biggest regret of the tournament was I, um, I in pack two of my first draft, I opened Tamiyo and I wasn't in bant, but I should have just taken it and moved into bant and I would have just banted in every format. So I missed an opportunity there. That is so insane. Brian, I want to talk to you a little bit about some controversy that was going on towards the later rounds of Worlds. Your finals opponent, Marcio Carvalho, there was some rumblings on Twitter about his perhaps checkered past, about cheating and things like that. And uh, some people were not so happy to see him in the finals and probably didn't want him to win. What are some of your thoughts on that? This is something that I completely avoided. I, I saw people talking about it on Twitter. Um, I saw rumblings about it on, you know, Reddit or wherever people were discussing things like this. This was something that I was just not going to throw my hat into the ring on. One, it seemed very unprofessional since I was playing in the tournament. And two, these kinds of controversies are things that I used to always like jump in on. And since I've kind of tempered myself a little bit because I realized it's just basically no value to myself uh, to ever get like super involved in them because... There's just controversy and people have very strong opinions and if you say the wrong thing, like it can really backfire in your face. Uh, so I, I kind of avoided that when it happened, but I did think a lot about it. My thoughts are that uh, I, I do believe that Marcio was a pretty significant cheater in the past. Uh, and a lot of his results are a result of the cheating that he's done. There's some pretty strong allegations against him from the past things, things that he's never really addressed. 
Um, and so I, I do believe that he is um, – and, uh, you know, even the one year at Worlds, like he was on a team and like his, his Portugal teammates were just, you know, saying that like, you know, you have to stop cheating or whatever, things like that. So I, I do think he has a pretty storied past of cheating. I think that a lot of people were rooting very hard against him in the top four because of that. Probably the most rooted against player in Worlds. But beyond that, I actually I think that Marcio is actually just a very, very, very good player. And I think that him being in Worlds is not really a surprise because whether or not he still cheats, and, and from what I saw, like I, I have no reason to believe that he is still cheating. Maybe he is, but um, I don't have any, like, you know, anything at that point is just kind of biased based on his past. But he is very good at magic, and he is like a world caliber player, even without cheating involved. So it's hard; it's really hard to tell with players like that because he's so good at magic that any success he has is something that he could achieve cleanly. But there's always that nagging thought: like, is he still cheating or not? Uh, and that's kind of the you know the, one of the dangers of being uh, a cheater is that you just always have that lurking behind the surface. Was there ever a time when going into the finals? You were worried that something might happen. No, uh, actually, playing. Uh, I've played Marcio actually a couple times in tournaments, even before Worlds, and he. It, it seems to me that he's trying very, very, very hard to be as, um, like trying very, very, very hard to never, never do anything that could make people accuse him of cheating. Um, so to me, I was not worried about it um, at all. Like we're we're also sitting in front of a ton of judges um, and, and the internet. Like everyone's watching the match. Uh, it's it's really hard to pull off a cheat there. Uh, anything that he could pull off would have would have to be something that is just a super skillful cheat that I've never seen or heard of or whatever to be able to pull it off in front of all those people. So. It was never something that I worried about. Honestly, it was never something that even crossed my mind. Um, I, I, even though I know his history, I don't believe that he was cheating in that tournament from anything that I saw. And if he was, he's very, very, very good at it. So that's just scary. <laughs> I think cheating is something that does get talked about. Maybe perhaps more casual players or novice or intermediate players are more worried about that. But uh, it's interesting to hear your perspective as a professional player at the pinnacle of the game, perhaps being worried or not being worried about cheating in some instances yeah so i think that cheating is simultaneously a bigger deal and a smaller deal than people make it out to be um you know they see something like a, somebody plays two lands on camera or things like that and they just immediately are just like mob and pitchfork like this guy's a cheater and i think a lot of those situations are accidental it's very easy to make those kinds of mistakes and things like that um so i think that in that regard like people are are just a little bit too gung-ho about cheating uh but in the same regard i think cheating is extremely damaging to magic and i hate cheating so much and it, it actually angers me to see people who cheat succeed um for example um like fabrizio is a good example where uh, i knew that he was a cheater not 100%, but I had just heard so many stories from different people and people who had just all these different like firsthand tales of like things that he had done that were super sketchy and and so forth. And I just, you know, it just all the pieces fit together. You know, he's going on this like this amazing run where he hasn't had success really before that point. And it's just kind of out of nowhere. It was very uh, Jared Betcher-esque uh, in a way. And... Um, all these different allegations against him and things like that. And it was just very, very frustrating to me to see him succeeding 
because I knew that he was not playing cleanly to do it. And um, it, it actually, like, it's one of the few things that really pisses me off to see that, to see people who are cheating thriving. And I think it's really harmful to the game of Magic as well. So, one, I think I think people are too... Uh, too quick to accuse innocent mistakes of being cheating but in the same time i think that we're too lenient and too uh like we don't take a hard enough stance on like prolific cheating like i think you know some, when someone like betcher has been premeditatedly cheating for a year like he should get banned for longer than like three years or whatever it was like like that like he is like very directly hurting the game of magic and all the players. And I think he should just be banned for 15 or 20 years or something like doing something like that. Like, why should he be allowed to come back and play magic again after, you know, all the things he's done. And, and I think that a lot of it too is based on like a lot of it's like, you know, the, the, the age of the player affects it too. Like, I, I think that a lot of like teenagers cheat a lot of them, like kids, like 15 to 18 years old. Like, I think just a, People would be surprised, but I think it's a pretty high percentage of them cheat. And a lot of that stuff that, like, once they grow up, they stop doing. So, like, I think if someone like that, you know, it's kind of almost like once you grow up, if you're still cheating, like, you should probably get banned for a long period of time. But if it's, like, something, like, you get caught when you're younger, I think it's something that people can move on from and, and like, stuff. So, I, I don't know. It's a, it's a really complicated topic. I actually think that cheating happens like pretty often too. Just like people cheats of opportunity, um, you know, someone forgets to write down like they gain three life from their lifelink creature. The opponent notices it but doesn't say anything because it's really disadvantaged for them in the game. Things like that. I think people do that kind of stuff a lot. Um, so I do think cheating is still like kind of a big thing that happens a lot in Magic. But at the same time, I don't think it's something that you like. I don't know. It's never something that's on my mind. Like, I never sit down and think about, like, my opponent might try to cheat me or things like that. And I think it's just harmful to your own game to, like, have those thoughts. Like, just just play Magic and uh, don't worry too much about it. And, I mean, you want to be vigilant, but if you're just, like, constantly paranoid about people cheating you, like, it really affects your own game in a negative way. Rolling back a little bit to the Grand Prix Master race, Fabrizio Anteri got banned for cheating. What were your thoughts when that happened? I was pretty happy because, you know, like I said, like I, I had all heard all these stories and like I was pretty convinced that he was a cheater from everything that I'd heard. And like he had just beat me in the top eight of a Grand Prix. And I was like, you know, thinking like, did he cheat me in there? I don't know. Things like that. So like to see that he got banned, I was like, I was really happy. And not even just from a personal level of like now I'm in the Grand Prix race, but just from a like a level of like, I don't I, I like to see like the bad guys get caught and the good guys prosper and seeing him constantly winning Grand Prix and like just listening to people on coverage being like, man, Fabrizio is just, you know, so amazing at magic and winning everything. And like, you know, how can he be stopped and stuff? But just knowing that it's not legitimate like that really hurt like to, to watch so um i was i was pretty happy that justice was eventually served yeah and you know you mentioned a layer just now brian that i didn't really think of is is it, it harms also coverage you know we have our commentators we have our casters we have our favorite personalities that are really genuinely excited about the competition and it makes me a little bit sad to know that in the back of their minds now that they're you know, going through some kind of like top eight or something, you know, I, I hope that they don't hold back expressing enthusiasm for a player that's up and coming and, you know, having a really good run. 
Yeah, I mean, it it just, it really harms the game of Magic in so many levels, including that, too. Like, the damage that all these other cheaters have done to the game just reflects, you know, on coverage and commentary and um, just the way that people perceive Magic. There's even just, I mean, I went back and I watched my finals match against Marcio, and it's just, like, like reading the, or even, even just any of the matches over the course of Worlds, like, reading the Twitch chat is just, like, Every time somebody makes a mistake, everyone's just yelling that they're a cheater. And, like, that's just harmful. Like, that's just not – that's just not good. Like, the fact that so many people just immediately jump to cheating anytime somebody jump makes any kind of mistake. And it's just like, is that is that the mentality that Magic players have? Like, that everyone's a cheater or that, like, everything's cheating or just, like – like, that's just not good. Like, that's not the kind of Magic that you want. Like, you want people to, like, be able to, you know, enjoy themselves and, like – you want people to give you want people to have like the benefit of the doubt at least like for the first time they do something like that and so like i i don't know i just it it, it is like it's super damaging to the community and how coverage handles things and just how people even how people view professional magic there's so many people who have this flawed view that like all professional magic players are cheaters like i've heard that so many times from so many different people these people who are just basically in denial that there's actually a lot of skill in magic and that the best players are there because they're very, very skilled because of like, and like all these like people getting banned for cheating does not help that in any way. You're right. It does take a lot of skill and there definitely needs to be a lot of acknowledgement of all the hard work that certainly you have put in through your four year journey through this game. Um, well, you know, I want to look to the future now, Brian, what was going through your head when you accepted that trophy? I, I honestly don't know. Like, I, I can't really tell you. It was, I, I was just very happy, very excited. And I couldn't really, I didn't, it was hard for me to put to words how I was feeling at the time. And it's still hard for me to really um, kind of comprehend exactly what was going through my head at the time. But it was basically just happiness and kind of satisfaction that I had achieved something that I had always wanted to achieve. Yeah, Marshall Sutcliffe said when he was interviewing you that he was still shaking a bit from those matches, from those games, and you were a cool as a cucumber. <laughs> you were pretty calm. <laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, I was very calm throughout the entirety of the top four, and um, I'm actually, I don't know, I, I've always been very good at remaining calm in pressure situations, and it was really hard for me to just turn that off after the match was over. Like, I, I was just in that zone of being like um you know calm and logical and playing the match of magic and uh just trying to keep my emotions in check and keep keep everything in check and so like even after it was over i basically like i couldn't i couldn't immediately snap out of that mode and that's something that i you know brad nelson's done that like a lot of people have said that they've had that same experience where you know, you you just are in this mindset for, you know, the two hours that match took. Um, and right afterwards, like, you can't just turn it off. Uh, it takes a little bit of time. And so you win the trophy. You win your $70,000. You also win a lot of bragging rights. Uh, do you just get, like, platinum for a long, long time <laughs> moving forward now? Yeah, so I, I earned platinum for this year. And because I've earned platinum this year, I have it it carries over to next year as well. So I basically have platinum for two years. Um, I'm also qualified for the Magic Online Championship, like a 16-player tournament for like Magic Online champions. 
which there's a pretty decent prize purse for that. Uh, qualify for next year's Worlds. Um, and I just, I, I get all the benefits for Platinum, like all the appearance fees and things like that. And like, I get, uh, yeah, the bragging rights of being the world champion. Uh, I don't plan on, you know, bragging too much about it, but I'm sure, certainly I will be daggering my friends about it, uh, as much as I can just in a, in a, in a fun and playful way. But, uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes you gotta, I don't know, give, give them a little bit of a dagger. So, yeah. So what are you going to spend the money on? Uh, Probably nothing, to be honest. Like, I think I'm just going to, uh, I have some student loans still uh, from my, my failed college excursion. I'd like to pay all those off. That's something that I plan on probably doing. Um, beyond that, it's just something I'm going to save up, um, you know, maybe maybe invest it a little bit or whatever. But uh, I don't really have anything that I want to buy that I'm going to blow money on. Um, I, I don't really like living a very extra, extravagant lifestyle. Uh, I'm pretty happy just living a pretty simple life. And uh, I don't really need that many things. Like, I'm not really a thing person. So um not going to really probably spend much money on anything. Uh, although Brad and I are going to go on a cruise at some point this year with significant others. So that's, that's exciting. Um, that is one thing I'll be blowing money on. Very cool. So you're just going to be sailing the Caribbean for about 10 days. Something like that. We haven't figured out the details yet, but it'll just be a nice way to chance to get away from magic, relax, just have a fun vacation that has nothing to do with magic and uh, just kind of celebrate like the great years that we've had uh, as friends and teammates and even just individually as magic players. Absolutely. That just sounds wonderful and also so well-deserved for everything that you've done. I mean, I don't know about that. I, I do. I mean, I, I will take it. I, I certainly uh, I certainly would love the vacation and, and just the chance to, to certainly celebrate everything that's happened. Um, in terms of whether or not I deserve it, that's, that's up for debate. Uh, I kind of am of the mindset that um, you don't really, people don't really deserve anything. They earn it. That's kind of the mentality that I have in life. So, um, you know, I put in all this work and then just because I, you know, work hard at something doesn't really mean I deserve any results from it. But any results that I do get are something that I have earned. And that's just kind of how I approach magic. Brian, what is upcoming for you? What's next? Uh, well, the immediate next is this weekend. I'm uh, playing in the Team Sealed Grand Prix with Shaheen Sarani and Craig Wesco. Uh, but beyond that, I am probably going to take a little bit of a breather from Grand Prix. I'm still going to be going and playing in Grand Prix, but not at the like uh, lightning fast pace that I was playing them last year. Uh, now that I'm Platinum, I don't really have uh, anything to play for in regards like I have uh, I'm already qualified for worlds next year and I'm already a platinum so um, basically I can't really achieve anything this year beyond that um, unless I wanted to try to like run for player of the year or something something that I don't think I'm going to be trying to do uh, so for me it's just a chance to play magic when I want to uh, and really just enjoy the process because there's nothing on the line for me, so I get a chance to just go out there, try to do my best, and and try to win some things. And like, there's just there's no pressure, but it's still something that I care about doing well at. Do you have your eyes on the Hall of Fame? I do. Yeah, that is something. I, it's something I've never talked about uh, because it feels a little. Uh, I don't know what the word is, maybe like ostentatious or something, but it feels a little bit like, 
you know, I don't have any results to back up me ever talking about the Hall of Fame. So, <laughs> not... Oh, really? World champion? <laughs> really? <laughs> Maybe until this weekend, I guess I could say. But, uh, it, yeah, it's always something that I've wanted. It's something that I... It is a long-term goal of mine, but it's not something that I, I, I ever talk about because... It, you know, it just it's so far off and it's not something where I'm even close to the benchmark for it that like it kind of feels like like who does this guy think he is talking about the Hall of Fame? Um, but it is something that I do care about. and I do want to be in the Hall of Fame one day. So it is something that is a long term goal of mine. And, it, you know, it's also a reason to go out there and play tournaments this year. You know, if I can top eight approach or something like that it pushes me closer to maybe one day being a Hall of Fame player. Well, you definitely have a great foundation now. You've played in a handful of Pro Tours, a lot of Grand Prix, SEG Invitationals. You are now World Champion 2016. You're Platinum for the next two years. What are some things that do you think you want to change about the process that you are currently using to play Professional Magic in order for you to set yourself up for long-term success? I actually am really happy with my current process of how I play Magic. I think it's actually very, very good. Uh, the only thing that I would want to change from it is maybe be a little less demanding. I want to prepare extremely hard for the tournaments I play in. And I, in fact, I feel like I could even up my level of preparation for those events. Um, I just want to maybe lower the total number of events that I do play. Uh, in which case, I basically, if I can play a little bit less events but prepare a little bit harder for every event, I think that would be just a little bit more of a perfect model. But right now, I'm actually very pleased with like how I'm approaching the game and my, my plan for that. Brian, what do you think contributes most to your advancement and skill? Two things. Number one, mental game. I have greatly improved my mental game in terms of how I handle tournaments. Uh, I tilt far less when I lose. Uh, I, I honestly, I just really almost don't even tilt anymore when I lose matches of Magic. Um, I am very, uh, pretty rational about tournaments, like taking them one thing at a time. Um, I don't get discouraged if I'm falling behind um, in a match of Magic or a tournament. And I don't get, like, intimidated by, like, what's in front of me. Um, I guess, like, even a good example would be uh, Grand Prix Portland a couple weekends before the Worlds. I was super jet lagged, had a really bad day one. I went six and three, didn't let it bother me. Came back day two, lost my first round, didn't let it bother me. And I just won the last five to go, you know, 11 and four and 11 and four is not a particularly great finish, but it's that kind of a consistency that you need to like succeed at the pro tour level. And like, um, I just, I, I want to always be in that kind of a mindset where I don't let losses bother me. Um, and even if I have to five Oh, my last five rounds in a row to get like a relevant finish, um, I'm not going to like feel discouraged or feel that I can't do it or anything like that. I'm just going to be like, yeah, I mean, I can do it and I can just take every match one at a time. And, and if I do it, that's great. And if I don't, then there's next weekend when I'm playing in another tournament and I can try to do it there. Um, so I think the mental game is a big thing. And then the other thing is, is uh, deck selection. Uh, I used to be very stubborn about what decks I would play, only playing things that really like suited my play style um, or that I wanted to play. Now I'm pretty wide open i'm willing to play almost anything and i just want to play the deck that gives me the best chance to succeed um and i don't want to get caught up in like my stubbornness or my will to just play like my own kinds of decks what are some things that you're currently working on basically the major thing that i'm currently working on is myself like physically uh going to the gym 
Uh, I'm trying to like lift weights. I'm trying to build some muscle. I'm trying to lose weight. Um, I'm trying to really improve myself in a physical way. Just be healthier, be stronger, be more fit. You know, I, I've had to kind of put that a little bit on the back burner because I've been traveling so much for Magic recently, you know, prior to the last Pro Tour and Lost Worlds and stuff that forced me to travel for so much. That was my single number one thing that I was working on uh, was that. So that is the big thing that I'm working on. It's not a ma- it's not related to Magic, but um, in a way it is kind of abstractly related because it, it definitely like you know, your confidence and your, how you how good you feel about yourself and just everything. Been a really great five months for me um and i i think a lot of that is because i have a i i've been i've been using like a good process and uh so forth so i i you know it things can always be improved but at the same time i don't want to change too much with something that's definitely working what are your goals for the next several seasons uh well my goals were originally to hit platinum but um i have i've accomplished that already so at this point i have to reassess um, and the, 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 the major thing that I know for sure is a goal that's standing out to me is top eighting a pro tour. So that is the, that is the big goal is, is, is top eighting a pro tour. Um, and that's the big thing. So, um, right now that, that is my major goal is I want to top eight a pro tour. It almost seems a little bit inverted. You are a world champion and your goal is to top eight a pro tour. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that speaks loudly to your commitment to consistency, consistency at this upper echelon of competitive play. To top eight a pro tour would be for yourself to prove again that you belong at that level, at that caliber. Yeah. I mean, I, I've throughout my entire career as a Magic player, I always have felt like I've had to prove myself. Uh, because I kind of started from the bottom, and when I first started trying to take Magic seriously, I was uh, I was much worse at Magic than I am now, and I've always felt like a chip on my shoulder of you know needing to prove myself, needing to you know show people that I'm not just a fluke or one lucky result. And uh, I think at this point I've I've kind of done that to some regards, but at the same time there's always more. Um, I can always top it another Pro Tour. Um, there's always going to be doubters and haters and people who basically think that something wasn't deserved or, or wasn't, you know, earned or whatever. Um, but I, I basically want to, I don't really worry myself with them too much, but at the same time, like I want to succeed and I want to, uh, you know, I want to prove, uh, not, not, not really prove. I just want to be one of the best in the game. Is there someone that you look up to or a player that you feel like is a role model that you're trying to strive towards? Hmm. I mean, there's a number of players who I, I think are just like kind of great role role models in that regard. Um, people who consistently put up good results and are very like, uh, like basically kind and humble about it. Like I think Reed Duke's a good example of a player like that. Um, it's hard to pinpoint exactly one person that I think is like a role model, uh, but it, it is just a, there's a lot of like Hall of Fame level players that I see as somebody who is very um, consistently doing well and um, not, you know, they're, they're very realistic about their, their abilities in the game. They, they, they're very appreciative of their success and things like that. And I think, I think Reed's a really good example of that. Um, you know, somebody like LSV is somebody who I look up to because he's so good at magic and he does so well in tournaments and he just has a great attitude about it, and that's that's where I want to be. Like I wanna, I wanna, I wanna succeed, and I wanna have a good attitude while I do it, um, because you know it's not really worth it if you're doing like 
you know, what's the point if you're succeeding, but you're not like enjoying the process or enjoying the ride or, you know, being able to like just have a good time while you're doing it. Um, kind of what's the point in that regard. So th- those are the kinds of players that I'm looking at as like, that's where I would like to be. And Brian, do you have any words of advice for players aspiring to get onto the pro tour? I guess the major thing is that you have to want it. Like you have to actually want it. And a lot of players want it, but they don't really like want it. If you know what I'm talking about, like they're not, you know, wanting something badly enough means you're willing to do what it takes to get that thing. And, you know, if you just want to be on the pro tour, but you don't like try, you know, you're not like, you're not working hard at improving at magic. You're not learning from people who are better than you. You're not like out there studying. You're not like, you know, testing and grinding and like putting in the hours it takes to succeed. Then like, you're not going to get there. You don't actually want it. You just think that you want it. And if it's something that you actually really want, like you're going to actually put, you're going to put the work in. And that's like the, the biggest thing if for success is like, you have to put the work in and you have to care about improvement. And, and the other big thing too, is you have to not put yourself like, you have to not have an ego. You cannot have an ego to succeed. Like you have to realize that you have a long way to go in magic. Like I just won the world uh, championships and I have a long way to go to being better at magic. And like a lot of people just have this, this like flawed view that they're better than they actually are or things like that. And it just really like, it's detrimental to their improvement. And like, they, they think that they deserve to be on the pro tour and that like they're kind of robbed that they haven't made it to the pro tour yet but really like you don't really des- like that's just a mentality that will never get you to the pro tour like you have to you have to see the flaws and shortcomings you have in your game work to improve them and then actually just put in the effort to get better wise words and Brian do you have advice for new players that are just starting off in the game just have fun. <laughs> yeah. That's the big one. Like just, just enjoy it. Like it is a game. Like for me, it's my life, it's career. But at the same time, I try to have fun when I play magic, even at the world championship, I wanted to joke around with my opponents and have a good time because it is still a game. We're still out there playing a game and, um, games are meant to be fun. Games are meant to be something that we do to enjoy ourselves. So yeah, if, you know, if you're just playing magic for the first, you know, first, or you're not that experienced at magic or whatever, the main thing is to have fun, enjoy yourself. And if you're not, then, you know, don't play or whatever. But, you know, really, that's that's the big goal for everyone is to just enjoy it. Brian, I've got some rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Brian, of the five colors of magic, white, blue, black, red, and green, what is your favorite color and why? Black, because I like uh, the juxtaposition of paying life for a benefit where you have one negative thing and one positive thing and they kind of counteract each other. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite black card? Phyrexian Arena. Ooh, I love that one. Which uh, art do you like better? The one from Apocalypse or the one from like 8th edition or ninth edition? I really like the one of the, the, I don't know which set it's from, but where the guy's in the arena. Ah, the um, one where uh, Gerard is leaning over Urza. Yes, think, that one. Yeah, the old school one. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Brian, question number two. If you could change something about Magic the Gathering, what would it be? Uh, I would change the way tournaments are structured to be uh, to involve less um, of a like... I would basically change the tournament structure in such a way that it's uh, maybe less demanding on the players or also so there's less like, you know, collusion or opportunities for collusion amongst players. Hmm. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Uh, for example, the current system 
has a lot of situations where players get paired against each other with greatly differing incentives. For example, the last round of a pro tour, there might be a player who has to win his match for platinum, and that's, you know, twenty could be $20,000 worth of value, and he's playing against somebody who has absolutely nothing on the line where the pro points don't matter to them. Um, and those two people have an extremely greatly different, uh, you know, value out of what that match means, and so there's incentives for them to, to collude with each other. Hmm, interesting. Brian, question number three. If you could give something to every Magic player, what would it be? I would give them... Hmm, that's a, that's a, that's a tough question, actually. I would give every Magic player a pair of cargo shorts. <laughs> that, way they can, that, that way they can store their dice, pen, pad, deck box, everything in one con- comfortable and convenient location. Very. You're not a fan of the backpack or the man satchel. You want cargo shorts. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Up here in Seattle, we have a thing called Utila kilts. They're kind of like kilts, but with lots of pockets and stuff. Would you ever wear a Utila kilt? Mm, Not sure I can do that. I don't know if if I'm a kilt person. (laughs) Okay. Not out of the question, though. (laughs) Okay. Brian, question number four. What do you see in the future of Magic the Gathering? I see it turning into a digital more of a digital uh, card game taking taking a higher uh, precedence, basically. Like, um, you know, everything in the world is just becoming more and more based on around technology. And I think within 10 years, we could see paper magic be obsolete, but magic be a big thing, uh, you know, through whatever technological devices we're using at the time, which could be way different than we're using now. Okay, yeah. I definitely see that trend as well. I think a lot of news in like Hasbro's like, you know, shareholders reports and things like that, a lot of a lot of trends are now moving towards that digital realm. Yeah, I think that's going to be a big thing in the next 5-10 years. And last, Brian, do you have any asks or requests of the audience? Uh, no, I don't actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very straightforward. Uh Brian, where can they find you on social media? Uh I'm on Twitter at uh Brown Doing It. B-R-A-U-N-D-U-I-N-I-T. Uh, you can find me on Facebook um, with my name. Uh, I also write articles and do videos for ChannelFireball.com. Uh, videos also go up on YouTube on Channel Fireball's channel on YouTube. So uh, if you want to see my articles or watch my videos or do things like that, you can find me there as well. Um, yeah, and also I, I tweet a regular amount, and I don't Facebook that often, but a lot of times I post bigger updates on Facebook. So if you want to follow me in those places, that's where you'll, where you'll see um, how things are going for me. That's very cool. Brian, I just wanted to take a moment to thank you and acknowledge you. It's been such a real treat listening to your life's journey through magic. And, you know, seeing you starting off grinding tournaments, doing the Versus series, you and Chris Van Meter, they were just some of just my favorite pieces of content there out there. And you're a prolific writer as well. You've done a lot to help the community in the game. And you've been such an inspirational figure with your rise to the top and your recent champion. And I just wanted to congratulate you and thank you for everything that you've done in the community. Thanks. I appreciate that. Brian Brown Doing, thank you so much for joining me today on Kitchen Table Magic. I'll have all of the links uh, where people can find you in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. Brian, thanks so much for sitting down and chatting with me today. You're welcome. Brian, do you have any parting words for our listening audience? I just want to say that uh, magic is great and have fun and, uh, you know, don't take it too seriously unless that's exactly what you want to do. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Brian Brown Doing. You can find BBD on Twitter at 
at Brown Doing It. That's at B R A U N D U I N I T. He's also on Facebook, so go say hi, friend him. And also, I'll have all the links posted in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We are almost done with season one. Like I said in the last episode, I am gearing up for season two, and I need your help. If you have any ideas as the listener of what kind of an episode you want to hear, who you want me to talk to, do you want me to talk about strategy, yada, yada, drop me a line, sam at kitchentablemagic.org, or send me a tweet at KTM Podcast. Of course, if you are enjoying the show, please consider supporting it on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash kitchentablemagic. Coming up in the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic. I was at an event and somebody asked me what the deal was with my beard. You know, why did I have this big crazy beard? What's going on? And I jokingly said that I wasn't going to shave until I won a tournament. Yeah. Well, word of that got to Patrick Sullivan and Cedric Phillips. They started talking about it on coverage at that event when I was on camera and I just kind of got stuck into it. So it wasn't something that I had intended to do. It wasn't something that I had, you know, was planning on doing. But shortly thereafter that, this whole beard culture for men just erupted. Yeah. And beards were cool. And I had this big, sweet, awesome beard that everybody was, was envious of. And I ended up going on to top eight, something like four or five events in that one season. Uh-huh. Finally ended up winning a tournament in Somerset. Uh, which allowed me to shave. Um, <laughs> but I think it's it's not so much the beard itself as it is what the beard stands for. Uh-huh. For me, it was setting a goal and working hard towards it. And you have all of these failures along the way that are still successes. You know, a top eight event is still a great success. At that point, I was focused more on trying to win and close a tournament out. Um, so it's not so much the beard as it is being able to set goals for yourself and following through. I'm talking to the beard master himself, Chris Van Meter. CVM shares with me his love of video games and also some pro strategy tips. All on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic. 